A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. Our guest today is former New York City public defender and current criminal defense attorney who's working out of the San Diego area here in California, our friend of the show, Danielle Iredale. Hi, Danny. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. We always love your commentary. You are for sure a fan favorite on the program. So everyone's going to be, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I know. Thank you. If you read the comments, you'll, you'll understand why everybody loves you. And we love you. And how's your new baby doing? Oh, she's so cute. She's so squishy and sweet. Um, She's very, very cute. Uh, We love that. Well, many blessings to you. Thank you so much. So we've got some crazy cases this week as usual. And honestly, the two cases this week are truly about greed, murdering spouses, and even a love triangle. And we thought it would be appropriate for a Valentine's Week episode. (laughs) Makes sense. It does make sense, doesn't it? Speaking of Valentine's, before we get into the deep, dark stuff, look what I got for Valentine's Day from our executive producers. (laughs) I love that. I finally got a True Crime Daily mug. I've only been asking for two years and and bitching about it, too. (laughs) I should have told you, I got the sweatshirt and I love it. (gasps) We love that. so cool. Yay, yay, yay. We want to say thank you to all you wonderful people from the criminal justice system who help us. Okay, let's get to the cases because I know everyone's going to be like, stop chatting and get to it. Okay, so here's what we have. We have a love triangle that literally ended in flames in a plot to collect a life insurance policy, of course. The lovers are behind bars, and the husband is dead. And the murder plot was really fairly simple. Kill the husband, set the house on fire to cover the evidence, collect the insurance policy, and run away. It didn't work out that way because, Danielle, it never does. It's not. No, absolutely not. And then our first case, which to me... Oh my God, this one has me so upset. They all get me upset, but this one, as we know, as mothers, this is is brutal. A man is accused of hiring his brother to kill his ex-wife. Why? To avoid alimony. This woman, this woman, his ex-wife, is the mother of his four children, two sets of twins. It's, who does that? Who, Who kills the mother of their babies. It's it's really unimaginable. It's so awful. It's so horrific. And the way this thing was plotted out, I mean, you know, the victim, the mother here, she was also a fourth grade teacher. And she was struggling financially. She was living in a house that was apparently, you know, provided to her with the help of her local church. She's a single mom raising Four children, two sets of twins, three girls and a boy. There are no words really for this. Uh, of course, I you know I have to say that the case is new. We don't mm-hmm. know everything. If the prosecution's theory turns out to be correct, I mean it's 
it's so horrifying, no matter what, this is a mother who was murdered. Mm-hmm. And to think about it, it, you can really go down just the loop of I, I, thinking about those kids who don't have their mother is, whew, it's really devastating. It's so remember. devastating. And and then, you know, look at it one step beyond that. Now their father is behind bars charged with killing his mother and their uncle is also behind bars charged with killing their mother. Psychologically, what do you do with this? So, and I'm glad that you said that. And I, um, I don't mean to do a gotcha, but what I found so bizarre about this case, the father, Jason Starr, from what I can tell, I wanted to go on, I went on the docket to see what I could find out from the actual case file. It looks like he's out of custody on an ankle monitor, which I find insane. He also is out on bail on a sex abuse case from 2018. Now, as a defense attorney, I am pro bail. I am pro bond, right? When the case proceeds, when it begins, you're innocent until proven guilty. You ought to be able to work with your lawyer, put on the best defense, et cetera. Uh, In this case, when I look at the federal bail factors, I do not understand how he's out of custody. On this case alone, you'd think he could be in custody, right? But to be out on another case, it's a presumption of detention when you're out on bail and you get a new case in federal court. So I don't know what went on. I can't find the conditions of his bond online. I am. It's kind of blowing me away. That's so interesting. That one's really getting to you. I think the other thing that you just mentioned, Danny, is this is a federal case. The yeah. the murder for hire plot is a f- federal case as opposed to state. Do you think that that's it's because what the brothers were moving or what? So that was an interesting thing, too, that they charged it. So either could have jurisdiction on a case like this. They, the the jurisdictional hook, the way to get it federal is using um, the phone, right? So when you use the phone, that gives the federal jurisdiction. I don't know why. I don't know why they chose to charge it federally. The state could also charge it. I know the state said they're going to go forward uh, on the state sex abuse charges against Jason Starr, the brother. I don't I, I don't know why they did that. I, I also found something that I think people might find interesting. Found the writ for Darren Starr, the brother. So the brother was just recently arrested in Texas. But this case is being prosecuted in Alabama. Where so she was feds, murdered. Right. Where exactly. the mother was murdered. Okay. So let's give everyone a little bit more summary detail. Because it, what's interesting about this case is everything's like blown up in like the last week or two, all this new information. But the murder actually happened several years ago, the murder murder of the mom. So um, maybe let's do a deep dive into the case and then start filling in these little gaps here because, you know, that brother who assisted the ex-husband was apprehended in Texas two weeks ago. He was on the FBI's most wanted list. They were looking for him. And I think he knew it was about time. So... Now, both of them have been arrested. So let's go back four years ago to Alabama. This is where the murder occurred. The victim here is Sarah Starr, a fourth grade teacher 
mother of two sets of twins who was found dead in her driveway. She had been shot outside her home in Enterprise, Alabama. She was only 38 years old. Now, this horrific crime took place on November 27 of 2017. And the alleged hired hitman in this case, according to authorities, is the woman's former brother-in-law. Okay. He's the one who was just arrested. So Darren Starr, that would be the brother-in-law. Everybody's last name is is Starr here. (laughs) So we're going to try our best to keep their first names only to help everybody keep up with this. So the alleged mastermind, this is according to police, is his brother, Jason Starr, who was married to Sarah. Okay. And as we said, he's the father of those babies as well. And all of this was apparently over alimony. Pretty outrageous. And we're not even talking about a lot of money here. And, right? It's not, I mean, it's, first of all, you can't even put a dollar sign on any human being. Then, you know, this poor woman who is the mother to these big, I just, I don't get it. Okay, so it's the Monday after Thanksgiving. So everyone's going back to school. It's the big day back after the big holiday. And Sarah was headed to school. Police believe that she was shot as she was walking from her home across the driveway to her car. And it happened sometime after 6.30 a.m., However, she was not found and she was killed execution style. About 8.30 in the morning, the other teachers and school administrators realize Sarah's not shown up for school and she's got her class of fourth graders waiting for her. So a few of her colleagues run over to her house just to check on her. They find her dead in the driveway. That was 8.30 in the morning. Two hours she'd been there. No one had seen her. Can you imagine? How and how horrific was this? for her colleagues to find her that way. And the school and the children were so traumatized by this murder, as you can imagine, in this small town. Who gets gunned down in their driveway? Who guns down a school teacher? Now, cops, they're only saying this now. They didn't say this at the time, are saying that they immediately suspected the ex-husband, Jason Starr, because they had just concluded a very bitter divorce and custody battle arguing, of course, over alimony, but he had an alibi. Jason had an alibi. He said that he had been eating breakfast at a local restaurant at the time of the murder. Plenty of people saw him, so he was not immediately arrested because at the end of the day, he had an alibi. What what would you say about that alibi, Danny? It seems calculated, right? I think he decided to be somewhere decided to be somewhere in public that would be the argument that i would make if i was prosecuting the case especially to try to keep him in custody while this case went on he was calculated and wanted to make sure that he would stay safe while this atrocious thing was going on yeah and and he is not accused of being the trigger man he is accused of being the mastermind and of plotting it. Is there a big difference in the world and the view of the law between the person who pulls the trigger and the person who calls for that murder? Frankly, no. He can be prosecuted. They're prosecuted in federal court conspiracy theory. They both came together for this event to happen. Of course, pulling the trigger when you look at the exact 
facts and circumstances of the case seems can seem worse. But in this case, nothing would have happened but for the husband. Right. The brother in law doesn't have anything to do with this poor woman. Sarah Starr, why is he going to be around? And the other thing that I'm sure this is going to, this is the kind of thing that gets under your skin, Anna, that the, the brother apparently, apparently, we don't know. These are allegations and I have to say that, but the brother apparently did this for a motorcycle and some cash. A motorcycle. Yeah. A motorcycle. The other thing that I wonder is, did they find their phones, right? How does the prosecution have this theory? How do they know? Maybe did they find sales records? I'm always interested when we have these allegations, and this actually was in the indictment, the pecuniary benefit in hiring a hitman, right? Pecuniary benefit, something of value. I, I really want to know, and, and we'll see, I suppose, when, when the evidence comes out, if they plead or they go to trial, how does the prosecution know what was exchanged. Exactly. And how did they track these conversations? Are there text messages? Sometimes when there is an arrest like this, especially in a case that's several years old, a lot of times there's a lot of information that comes out. It really depends on the prosecutor. And sometimes they hold a lot of information back, just give you enough to say, this is why we suspect them. This is why they've been charged. And this is what we think that they've done. So the details on this, I believe, will be equally upsetting, stomach-turning without question. So, I mean, on the face of it, it's horrific enough. So let's get a little background here um, on the situation, on the marriage, and other things going on. Jason and Sarah Starr were married in 2011. The couple had two sets of twins, Gracie and Hattie, and Cooper and Katie. (laughs) I know. I know. Jason Starr is the one who filed for divorce. Okay, please help me with this one. So um, he files for divorce from Sarah in 2015. And look, we all know when you have a child, you bring it into a relationship, it changes the dynamics of a family. Everyone knows it's very stressful to pay for children. We all sure. we all get that. And then multiply it times four, you know, and in sets of twins without question. That's a lot going on. But still, right? Um So he files for divorce, and then the court proceedings were quite contentious. The divorce was finalized in July of 2017, and Sarah Starr was killed four months later. Court records show that they were to share custody of their four children. The two sets of twins at the time were 12 and then 7 at the time of her death. Jason Starr was ordered to pay his ex-wife $1,050 a month in child support and $1,500 in alimony. Um, She was also awarded a portion of his military benefits according to court documents. I see this a lot. For some reason in these um, contentious divorces, not only is the alimony an issue, obviously, okay, it's money, but people lose their minds over their pensions. I've I've seen it, you know, with cops, you know, who've done the same thing, who've hired hitmen to get rid of, you know, their spouse. I see it all the time. Interesting. Yeah, I 
I don't know why, but it's something I've picked up on um, over the years in these murder for hire cases. Because, you know, it's almost like there's a formula. There's something going on. There's an argument. It's over has to do with a broken heart or money, divorce. And like I always say, it's just easier to divorce the person. So I think, you know, they were down the right track getting a divorce. But I guess the court went too far in suggesting that um, the father of four babies should help his single working ex-wife. She wasn't sitting home. She was working. Okay. She's struggling. The woman is working during the day and raising four children by herself. How can he begrudge her that? Yes, exactly. That's what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. And we're not talking about that much money. It turns out to be something like $2,500 a month. For four kids. Yeah. (laughs) They need shoes. (laughs) They need food. (laughs) They need uniforms. I mean, come on. Um, I know. I'm sorry. I'm just really upset about this case because, you know, again, this is a woman who had need and even the church was standing up to help her. So it's not like there was, it's not like it was $10,000 a month to get your nails done is what I'm trying to say, as we see in in some other divorce cases. These were living expenses. Living expenses. Absolutely. Absolutely. So police say that Jason was angry and bitter about having to pay Sarah the $2,500 a month. And um, according to court records, um, her, which we're now getting now, her ex-husband, Jason, was questioned at the time, was apparently considered a person of interest because usually the person closest to you and if you're having a nasty divorce, but no arrests were made in this case for four years. Now, you mentioned this, Danny, to try, and I'm just giving everyone the context of the timeline. Four, no, excuse me, six months after the murder, Jason Starr, the ex-husband, gets arrested on a separate charge of sexual abuse of a child. He was arrested May 24th of 2018. We don't know who this child is. Jason Starr pleaded not guilty to the charge of sexual abuse of a child less than 12 years old. And um, there was a formal request that was filed to the court to have the trial moved to the nearest county free of prejudice outside of Coffee County because, I guess... People were like, well, your wife has been murdered, ex-wife. Who who did that? Um, but the man hadn't been charged. Why move it out of Coffee County? So before I give you this theory, I, I want to say something. And that's, this case is just horrifying. And I think when you stop to think about it, you can, it can be so, so, so dark and so deep. And so I don't want to spout these theories and and make it seem like I'm it's a sport right that I'm thinking about what happened um I, I can't imagine what those children are going through and this sweet sweet woman who's the mother of two sets of twins I know that the theory that police are putting out there is is the alimony and the pension and that makes sense right but Something that's interesting, legally, there's no requirement to prove motive for murder, right? It helps the prosecution's case because it makes sense and it makes it more likely that this person committed the murder if they have a motive, but it's not required. I can't get this later arrest out of my head. And I wonder, I don't know when 
the allegations underlying that arrest took place, right? We know he's arrested in 2018, but sometimes, especially when in the cases of sex abuse of a minor, the statute doesn't even start to run until they're 18. Sometimes there's no statute of limitations, right? So this could have been an event that happened many, many years prior. I wonder if poor Sarah might have known something about that and might have been a witness. And this Ooh. might have had to do with that. It's complete speculation, but it's a very odd uh, wrinkle in the case. Now, they mm -hmm. haven't charged him with witness tampering. Of course, that's an incredibly serious, serious charge. And maybe it's too speculative, but it's a very, very odd thing to me here that this charge comes out right around the time that all of this is happening, right after the divorce. There's a lot there. Interesting. And here, my theory was absolutely based on absolutely nothing that the timing of it was interesting thinking if the mother is murdered, then the four children would go to the father. So then the four children would be in the primary care of the father. And then this charge, I'm not saying that it's the children because we have no idea who the victim exactly. in this case is, nor am I suggesting that, but I'm curious. These are all things to think about. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, Absolutely. much to think about. Okay, so let's move on here. So um, on that sex abuse case, the charge, he was released from the Coffee County Jail on $30,000 bond. And as a condition of his release, Jason is forbidden from having contact with minor children. Danielle, help me out here. He's the father of four minors. So there are cases on this, right? This exact issue when somebody has children and they're accused in a sex abuse case against minors, can the court say you're not allowed to be with your children? I know there are federal cases where when the child is not a victim uh, of the father, and I say father because of the percentage, mm -hmm. right? It's, it, it is generally a man, um, at least on the cases that are prosecuted. Some federal courts have said that's a step too far. If they're on, for example, supervised release after they've served their sentence, you can't forbid a father from seeing his children. I don't know what the conditions of bond were in this case and whether or not they forbid him from seeing the children. I, I wanted to find them again. I, I couldn't find them for the state case. Didn't seem like they were online records. And what's important here is that when you're dealing with minors, obviously, uh, much of the information is kept confidential, uh, especially when you are the victim of um, a, um, a sexual assault. But even, yes, but even in the uh, children, the star children, the four children, what we don't know is um, whose custody they are in um, and have been in. It was decided but it was not publicly released. So I would presume that they are with family members and that they are being taken care of, but clearly the courts had a way in on what to do with the children, um, especially after the father was charged with abusing a minor. And then following that, the arrest of the father in December for allegedly, you know, trying to murder the mother. Yeah, so we we are aware of that. We just don't know where they are. So, um, but that has been taken care of, and all of that is confidential. So now let's jump forward. We're going to jump four years to December second of twenty twenty one. This is just a few months ago. A federal grand jury indicted the ex husband, the father of the children, Jason Starr, with the use of interstate commerce facilities 
in the commission of a murder for hire. So that would have been the the communications, right, between him and his brother. The indictment alleges that Jason Starr plotted with his brother to execute Sarah and that they traveled from Texas to Alabama to do it. The motorcycle was a 2016 triumph. I have no idea of the value of this thing, but nonetheless, that's what they thought Sarah was worth. And then some cash, and we don't know how much cash. Okay, a few days later, after the indictment, Jason is arrested, and he has entered a plea of not guilty on the murder-for-hire plot. But of course, we're not done with this case, because his alleged accomplice was on the run. And so the FBI put the brother Darren Starr on their most wanted list. Darren finally surrendered two weeks ago on Jan- uh, excuse me, on February 5th, taken into custody in Hondo, Texas. And as we said a little while ago, this murder very deeply affected the entire community, not just immediately the family, but because she was a teacher, Sarah, the children were obviously like beside themselves trying to figure out who would kill their teacher. You know, by now, many of the children probably know that it is her ex-husband who has been charged. But the way the community at the school dealt with the immediate murder of Sarah was to build a garden in her memory. And it's really very beautiful. It's got a bench and flowers and big rocks. And the rocks are painted with little messages. And... um. I thought that that was a a really healing thing to do and something to do with the children to remember this woman who who really was loved and just wanted to be a teacher her whole life. Just an amazing teacher. The town, the students just adored her. Yeah. It's just, this is such a tragic case. I really... Oh, it's so disturbing, so disturbing. So we will keep an eye on this one because I I can't wait to find out more about the details about, yes, I see a finger. I have to tell you one other little note, one little nugget that I discovered as well. So Jason, one of the theories, right, that we've been discussing is that this murder for hire was because he didn't want to pay the alimony, didn't want to lose part of the pension. In the docket of this federal case, it appears that he had requested to have a court-appointed attorney. And there's something called a CJA 23. It's a financial affidavit that you fill out that says, here are my assets, here are my liabilities. The court denied that request. So the court said, you're doing just fine financially to hire an attorney. So he does have a retained attorney on this case. I don't know who will end up representing the brother, Darren Starr, who I think is going to be arraigned next month. Perhaps he can pay his attorney with motorcycles or auto parts. So Yes, I, I went I, there. I, you know, and I'm so glad you did because I've actually been wanting to say this. Um, my world, my job world can be really dark, can be so sad. I see the suffering on, on both sides. Uh, my clients suffer. Of course, the victims suffer. And when I was a public defender, I I start, it would really affect me. I would be very, very sad. And I had a mentor who was fabulous. She would walk into court and it was like she walked on water, right? And she was always glowing. And she said, listen, darling, you can either laugh or cry. And I choose to laugh. 
So I think that when we make these jokes, we do it because we want to feel better. We want other people to feel better. There's nothing malicious meant about it. It's not meant to you know, disrespect these the, the people who are suffering. Right. And so I think in my career, we make terrible jokes and it's because there's so much sadness, especially now in the world. I feel like there's a heaviness to the world. And sometimes making a joke is what what someone needs. Well, I, I mean, at, at his expense, I mean, what Absolutely. he is charged with, what he is charged with, it's despicable. And it is and it just it makes it. You know, human, again, we cannot put a, a value on human life, but when you lower the value even more, it is like an extra insult or injury, which we're going to see in the next case. Because yes. the next case has me going crazy over the tiny amount of the life insurance policy <laughs> that that these people collected, were trying to collect on this poor guy that they allegedly murdered. So, um that that's that's what kills me is is the value of human life look it's 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 priceless but it's just worse when you make it for over so little so we're going to take a quick break from and hear a quick word from our sponsor and then we'll come back with our um second case if you struggle to figure out what to make for dinner each night it might be time to check out hello fresh HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week so you can get the convenience without skimping on the quality. Skip those trips to the grocery store and say goodbye to those long lines. HelloFresh offers the flexibility that you need to easily customize your order online or in the app. You can change your delivery day, your food preferences, the plan size, or you can even skip a week whenever you need to. And HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality. And I have to tell you that I've always been really impressed with the produce. As you know, it can be a struggle these days to find really fresh produce. And I can tell you, I was really, it's like the stuff had just been picked what they sent in my box. Really impressive. So go to HelloFresh.com slash TCD16 and use code TCD for True Crime Daily 16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash TCD16. Don't forget to use the code TCD16 for up to 16 free meals and the three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. In our next case, Danielle, I say this all the time, that love triangles always end badly. At the very least, at least one person's feelings will be hurt. And in the worst case, someone or others will end up dead as a result of these triangles. And so here we have a wife and her lover who came up with a simple plot to get rid of the woman's husband. And... We see it played out all the time. It's almost as if there's a standard playbook here. Okay, we're going to get a life insurance policy out on, on the person, husband or wife, before they pass. Then we're going to kill them. We're going to do a really lousy job of covering up the evidence and, and how we got there. And then as soon as they're dead, we're going to try and collect the life insurance policy. It's the standard playbook. Standard, standard playbook. What always fascinates me is when someone takes this playbook, runs with it, and gets away with it. 
Because there are people that get away with it. There, there have to be, but the ones that get caught certainly aren't the road scholars of the bunch. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, so here's the plot that these two came up with, according to police. It was to kill the husband while he was sleeping, then burn down the house to eliminate the evidence and cover up the crime, and then collect the insurance. Well, as we all know, you know, and it doesn't take a lot to know this, just because you burn down the house does not mean that you eliminate all the evidence. And if the person has been murdered, shot, it's going to come out in the autopsy. So it's like, hello, people, you know. Yes, not the Rhodes Scholars. This is not the team from the Rhodes Scholars. <laughs> um, and as horrible as all of this is, and this is very tragic, what I believe makes this more of an insult is that the payout that they were after was $26,000. Usually when we talk about life insurance policies, people are going on about hundreds of thousand dollars or yeah. millions of dollars in insurance policy, right? And people are up to debt and all this other stuff. We're talking about $26,000. And was this woman the, I read a nice, a really nice tribute to the, the victim in this case. He was a baseball coach. He had two sons. Was this woman, Anna, do we know if the woman was also the mother? We don't the believe so. We okay. don't believe so. Um, yeah, I I'm, don't believe that she is. So let's, let's get to the victims and all of the people here. The victim here is 42-year-old Chad Ensel. And the murder took place in Bismarck, North Dakota. The wife's boyfriend has just been convicted. He entered a plea. And the wife's trial is up next in just a few weeks. So let's go back to the scene of the crime. Police say that they got a call, 911, but there was a house on fire. This was on January 2nd of 2020, so two years ago. And this, the house was like completely engulfed. After firefighters get the fire out, they find the corpse of Chad Ensel. And he had reportedly been shot multiple times. An autopsy showed that he died of a gunshot wound to the head. A double-barreled shotgun was found next to Chad's body. I suppose one could make the argument that maybe initially they were staging this to look like a suicide. But as we all know, <laughs> placement of weapons and how they are placed has a lot to do with whether they pulled the trigger. Well, and suicides are generally one gunshot wound, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not multiple. Yes. And then after, then how do you set the fire after you've shot yourself? Hello? Again. Um, so the coroner believes, this to me is very fascinating. The coroner believes that Chad had been dead at least three days before the fire was set. What, your wheels are turning, Danny? Yeah, I that's shocking to me. Mm -hmm. So because there was a level of decomposition that they were still able to analyze, even though the place had been set on fire. So this is very interesting because this date is going to line up very in a very interesting way. So conveniently, his wife, 39-year-old Nikki Sue Ensel, told authorities that she had moved out of the home a few days earlier on December 30th. Oh, is that like three days earlier? <laughs> wow. 
okay, timing is lining up. Look at those stars. And that she was living in a motel room. But, but who was the room registered to and who was paying for it? Oh, that would be her lover, Earl Howard, the man charged in this yep. case as well. So Nikki and Chad um, married in May of 2016. That is why, Danny, I don't believe that the the adult boys could be of this marriage um, and that she could be the mother. Makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was working at a company that supplied truck parts and she owned her own business, a little bakery. Okay. It's unclear when Nikki Sue started her her affair with Earl, but police gathered photographic proof that included videos, um, photos that were given to them by friends and other people. So clearly it wasn't a secret. I mean, if you've got photos that other people are given to you, now it's possible they could have gathered it also, additional information um, during the arrests, but... In their phones. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so sometime in November... Or December of 2019, this would have been, um, is when Nikki and Earl began to plot what they were going to do with Chad. Now, I would say, can you not divorce Chad and go off, you two? Like, can't you just divorce the man, leave him alone, go on with your life? Like, why is that not an option? I, I never get it. And that's, oh, I'm sure that's what it comes to everyone's mind, right? Just... Divorce them. Yes. Okay. So prosecutors say that Nikki Sue took out a $26,000 life insurance policy on Chad a few days before his death. Oh, that's not suspicious, is it, people? And then tried to collect on the policy right after the poor man died. What What are we doing here? I don't know what we're thinking, but we're clearly not thinking very clearly because that is just... It's, you're not helping your case, right? You're not helping nope. your case. Anyway, uh, it did not take long for police to charge the lovers in this case, R- really. It didn't take them but a minute. Earl Howard, who's a dual citizen of the U.S. and Canada, uh, turned himself in a week after the murder. Okay, so police really did act pretty swiftly here uh, within yep. a week of Chad's murder. This to me is just so interesting. Like, it's so dramatic. Like, this could be in, in like a Bond movie. That the man surrendered himself on the Blue Water Bridge that connects Port Huron, Michigan with Ontario, Canada. Doesn't that sound like incredibly dramatic? Totally dramatic. And was he fleeing? Did he change his mind? Right? Because he, he's dual citizen with the United States and Canada. I, I believe, I'm almost certain Canada has an extradition policy. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been, you know, get out of jail free card, but just an odd location. On the bridge. Odd- right. I will meet you halfway on the bridge. <laughs> yeah. It's like, again, like a movie scene. So what remains unclear to this day is who shot Chad. And I'm going to ask you why this is important, Danny, because... Here's what Nikki told the police. This is the wife. Nikki Sue told the police that her boyfriend Earl did it. He's the one who shot my husband. She said that it all happened at home, that Earl shot her husband to death after arguing with him in the bedroom on December 30th. Well, what would they have been arguing about? I guess, hello, 
that's my wife. You shouldn't be sleeping with her. It's a pretty reasonable place to start a conversation. I guess it's a fair request. I think it's fair. <laughs> but the forensics could not identify on the murder weapon who pulled the trigger. And that has actually been an issue for prosecutors in this case. Yes. And we know that Earl pled. But I don't think he pled to to actually pulling the trigger. Right. right. That case, that part, that charge was dropped because prosecutors... Right? So, Danny, here's what I don't understand. In this case, they can't prove forensically which one of the two pulled the trigger. In this case, that seems to be very important to prosecutors, where in the case right before this, where you have the two brothers charged with um, murdering Sarah, the, the mom, it doesn't seem to be an issue. So I'll answer this with a few, a few thoughts, a few theories, right? In the other case, uh, it's a conspiracy case, and they have their theory, right, as to who pulled the trigger and as to the husband's involvement in that, right? He directed the brother to pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. There's legal theories uh, acting in concert, conspiracy, wherein other individuals can be held criminally liable for what someone else does. And it makes sense, right? You know, uh, uh, two people go out and they decide to rob a bank and they're both holding guns, right? And they they shoot people and someone dies. Both of those people are going to be held accountable to varying degrees by the law. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you don't just get to say, oh, well, it you know, it wasn't me. In this case, it's a question of proof, right? They don't want to, the prosecutors don't want to have a situation where they go to trial with two co-defendants and the co-defendants go like this, right? Because then it's risky and they can lose risk losing both cases. In this case, Earl came forward and he took responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. He pled guilty. He was sentenced to 25 years. What I find really weird, Anna, is that he was sentenced prior to her trial. That was part of the condition of the plea yes. deal. It's odd. And the reason that I think it's odd, at least how it works um, in my cases and in my experience, when you do have a co-defendant and you have who I think right, is a cooperator, someone who's like, OK, I'm going to testify against my co-defendant. I'm going to go to the trial. I'm going to help you secure this conviction. And it's obviously going to give me a benefit, et cetera. Usually the prosecutor will wait until the person does their part of the deal. They testify, they provide whatever evidence. And then they sentence them after because mm -hmm. they want to know how much what they did was worth. And they also want to make sure that they're going to follow through. Right. In this case, I don't know that he's going to be a witness. There is a mechanism in federal court. It's called a rule 35 where you can be sentenced and then cooperate and your sentence can be reduced. Oh, you know, after afterwards. Uh-huh. Mm, I don't okay. know what the law is in this state with respect to that, but it's very odd that he pled guilty first. He was sentenced first. And we don't know what's going to happen at trial or what the defense is going to be. Well, she has pleaded not guilty. And so she has not changed her story the entire time about that, that it was Earl who did it. It wasn't me. I'm not guilty. And I'm going to fight this the whole way. Um it is interesting that initially prosecutors were going to try them 
together, not individually, but together. And then Earl kind of pulled himself away by taking the deal, changing everything going on. Um, because he is also Canadian, uh, as I was doing some research, I do love the way the Toronto Sun newspaper referred to the lovers as, quote, illicit paramours. You know, you just don't get that enough in crime reporting, illicit paramours. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. I think it's worth it. I think so. Illicit paramours. I was just like, wow. I love the way this article was written. It was just so colorful. Anyway, back to our illicit paramours. Um, So it was, of course, working on the defense's side in their favor, the fact that prosecutors could not forensically identify the shooter. As you said, it was a weakness in the case. There was additional risk. So that's why the actual murder charge was dismissed. Um, But of course, Earl still faced the felony charges. As you say, he did a deal. So here's what he got. He pleaded guilty to four felonies and was sentenced to 50 years in prison with 25 years suspended on the murder conspiracy, which is the most serious of the charges. He will serve at least 85% of that sentence, which is about 21 years. It's always that math always confuses me. It's like the new math of crime. Um, So basically, that means Earl will be about 64 years old before he's eligible for parole. Here's the other thing. The family of the victim, Chad's family, remember, he has two adult sons. Yes. Did not object to the deal. They thought it was a good deal. I think there's also a finality to it. It's probably you can never bring someone back. And it's just a terrible thing to imagine looking at the person responsible for causing that pain and that devastation to you. But there might be, I, I don't know, some some piece, right, to that chapter being closed, at least as to you know one of the accused. My guess is that if the family has any additional fury, that it's directed at the wife. Because this is going to be the woman who was in your home. This is going to be the woman who was at the holidays. This is going to be, you know, the woman who took out the policy. Earl may have been a part of this, obviously, as he's um, just um, agreed to in the plea deal. But think about it. If you're the family, you're angry at both of them, but you're particularly angry at this widow. It's even more of a betrayal, right? If if indeed... If indeed she's guilty and we'll see what happens at the trial, but Mm -hmm. it's just more of a betrayal. It's someone you know, right? To think about someone I know, someone I probably had in my home. Yes. 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 The illicit paramour. Absolutely. Okay. So now... Nikki Sue Ensel has pleaded not guilty, as we've said. Her trial is scheduled to begin February 28th. One additional thing here, just a little background. I don't know where to put it other than to put, you know, a little, you know, little footnote on it is that she apparently has a history of financial crimes. And it appears that her attorney has managed to keep that from being used in the conspiracy to commit murder. That the is that true? Is that accurate? I wanted to break that down a little because this is an interesting thing. I think sometimes when these cases go to trial, the public is always somewhat flummoxed by the evidence rules, as am I as an attorney, right? You'd think more is more. Let's put all the facts out there. But 
the it's called motions in limine. You move, which is just a request to the court to keep certain facts out or to put certain facts in. And there's a general theory in the law that, look, if someone's on trial for X, we're not going to bring in ABCDEFG, whatever they did in their past, because we want the jury to look at the facts here. We don't want the jury to say, well, they're a bad person, so they must have done this. In this case, the financial crimes have an interesting spin. So the judge said, look, you can't bring them in in what's called your case in chief. When the prosecutor's putting on their case, calling their witnesses, you can't bring it up. But if she chooses to testify, they can come in. And I'll tell you why. Not every crime would come in, but crimes, it's called cream and falsy, crimes involving you know, truth telling or deceit do come in under the theory that now that someone's testifying, they want the jury to believe that. So the jury should know whether they've been honest in the past or dishonest. So if you've committed any sort of fraud crime, that's more likely to come in. Whereas if you had, let's say, like a misdemeanor assault, that might not under the theory that, well, a misdemeanor assault in the past doesn't go to your integrity, right? And, and, and your truth telling. So that's how it's going to come out. That'll only come in if she does testify. Will the jury in her case be told that Earl has already taken a plea deal? Here's what's interesting. I have had cases like that. I've had cases where the prosecutor says, we're trying everyone together. I had an amazing five co-defendant case with all my friends were on the case and they were all there. So no one could really you know, point the finger at the other one. And then I've had cases where only one person is tried. In California state court, when I've had those cases, the judge has always kept out whoever pled, whoever uh, was convicted. They've always said, you need to consider just the evidence against this defendant. There's an argument both ways, and I don't know how the judge will come out here. Interesting. Well, we're going to know the answer to that really soon because her trial is coming up at the end of the month. Yes. I wonder if it'll be televised. I don't know what the state court rules are there. In Bismarck. I do not know. We'll see. Yeah. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on our social media. And here's our producer, Will Updike, with what y'all are talking about. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you, Will? Doing well. So we got an interesting case this week from the great state of Florida. Apparently, a drunken woman on a motorized suitcase led a bike-mounted police chase through the Orlando airport. Now, how this all went down was the Orlando woman is also accused of battering an officer, but this started when she was traveling from Orlando to New York on a Southwest flight. Now, the gay agents there refused to let her on board because she be, she appeared to be too intoxicated. Now, the woman claims to have had only two drinks before the flight, uh, but they cited her glassy eyes, inability to stand straight, and the odor of alcohol as the reasons they suspected she might have been too intoxicated to fly. Now, an officer tried to get her out of the secured area of the airport where, of course, if you've been on a flight any time in the last 20 years, you know you're not allowed to be without a valid boarding pass. 
And she ended up giving the officer the middle finger and rode away on the motorized suitcase, which prompted this police chase through the terminal. Now, if you can picture this, Chelsea's on the suitcase riding around. The officer is on a bike. You got a very bizarre chase situation going down. And when the officer finally caught up to Chelsea, he attempted once more to get her to voluntarily exit the secure terminal of the airport. Now, this is when things kind of took a turn for the worse. She ends up spitting at the officer. So another officer gets involved she reportedly spat again this time hitting an officer in the eye so at this point she was taken into custody but not before ripping apart the police vehicle's fabric headliner and reportedly defecating in the seat which caused around twelve hundred dollars in damage according to the arrest report look i like to get a little relaxed before a flight but this sounds like a lot more than two drinks (gasps) i mean you know i could I'm like trying to picture this woman on a motorized, you know, suitcase. I'm like, I want one of those. I want to ride around on a motor on a motorized suitcase. Okay, spitting way too far. But pooping in the back seat? No, absolutely not. No. Yeah, it, it, it definitely goes from like a silly story to uh, taking a pretty weird turn. Uh, but let's see what the great fans that we have over on the True Crime Daily Facebook had to say. Uh, May S said, Florida does it again. You can always you can always count on Florida for for a story like this. Uh, Heather M says, I'm more interested in where she got the motorized suitcase. Yes, me too. Yes, me too. Yeah, I have to be honest. I did not know that this was even an option, but it It is like it is. But oh, my God, I've never seen one in action. Not it's, during a chase. <laughs> yeah, it's both like a seat and a and a vehicle and your baggage. I, I can't imagine anything better when you're at the airport. Mikey F says, hope she was playing the Benny Hill, Hill theme during the chase, <sighs> which I, I need to see someone do an edit of this video to that song. That would be hilarious. Uh, so Neil R also said, I guess she caught a case. Love uh... it, Neil. <laughs> uh, and Lachelle S said, what a nutcase. Ah. We love our puns. Uh, But that's going to do it for this week's comment section. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. You know what makes me think now is as horrible as this is, can you imagine if she'd gotten on the plane and then pulled her defecation move on the airplane? What a freaking disaster. You'd have to land in the middle of the country, in the middle of nowhere, with a berserk individual who's like smearing feces everywhere. Oh my Lord. It's almost best that she didn't get on that plane. Yes. I think that's right. <laughs> I also think that after the last two years, kind of nothing can shock me. Yeah. 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 Clearly. But that, I've never heard of anything that's quite that bad. Far. Yeah. That's pretty she, far. Yeah. She went too far. Well, thanks, Will. We'll see you next week. Absolutely. See you then. Bye. Well, that was pretty crazy, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 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 Thank you so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure to have you on and hear your take on everything. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Danny, where can people find you on social media or if they need a compassionate attorney? I have an Instagram. It's at Iredale Law, I-R-E-D-A-L-E-L-A-W. Got a website and I hope to hear from people in the future. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know there are going to be lots of comments. There always are. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Uh, we also want to make sure that we acknowledge and say thank you to our sponsor for this podcast, HelloFresh. And you can find all the episodes of our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and sign up for our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>